Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. My name is Andrew Dore. I'm your host today. It has been quite an eventful last few days around the world and in the markets, and so we're going to take some time this week to dig into that. Before we do, I do want to do my normal disclosure and remind everybody that what we're talking about today should not be considered individual investment advice for you. This is instead a review of broader themes in the market, and as it relates to your personal portfolio, we'd encourage you to talk to your financial advisor directly to get that advice. But let's move on from that, and I want to I wanna start this week. We've spent a good bit of time the last couple of weeks talking about Russia, talking about Russia and Ukraine, talking about our dear friend, Comrade Putin. And I'll be honest, I haven't said the nicest things about good old Vlad, and I don't intend to this week either. But I did think it was interesting, just to tell one story. One of the things that, uh, as we've gotten this podcast up and running, we have a service that posts it kind of around to all the different podcasting providers, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. And that service allows us to see some metrics on how many people are listening, where we're getting listeners from. And one of the things that it allows is it shows us geographically where listeners are coming from. Don't worry. I can't see who exactly is listening to the podcast, but it gives kind of a broad geographic overview. I thought it was very interesting last week when I pulled this up. Right after we posted on Monday, shortly around the time that Mr. Putin gave his uh, speech recognizing the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Russia, or excuse me, of Ukraine as independent nations, right after that, we got a listener from the Russian Federation. I was like, man, that's kind of spooky, right? Like, I don't have any clients in Russia. So Vlad and your minions, as you're listening around the world to everyone who is saying mean things about you, all I can say is, it's what you deserve. Let's move on from that, and let's talk about what's happening in Russia, because it's world-altering. It's a big deal. About Three weeks ago, we wrote a memo called the Putin Papers, and in that memo, we talked about essentially how, while what, while we didn't know what was going to happen exactly, the bad guys in the world, and there are good guys and bad guys, the bad guys in the world were looking at a politically weakened USA and saying, you know, I don't think you have the means or the will to stop us. And as we said that time, someday soon, be it Putin or Xi or someone else, someone was going to give it a go and see how the Western world would respond. Well, Putin gave it a go this week. And like it or not, we are now going to bear the consequences of that act around the world. How have we responded so far? Not exactly well. You know, as, as we look at the mess of politics in our country, you know, there used to be a line I remember growing up in the 80s. In the Reagan 80s, the line was politics ended at the nation's shore. When we got into conflicts with Russia or the USSR at that time, it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican, we were all united. That's not exactly true today. There's uh, quite a bit of discord uh, in how we're handling this, and I'm really hopeful that we'll bring it back together and act like grown-ups. But, you know, it's not our job here to wade into that political swamp. 
we want to wade into the market and economic swamp and understand, you know, how what Putin has done is going to impact people's portfolios. So let's take a dive. First of all, before we can understand what all of this means, I think we have to do a dive into what the Russian economy means, specifically to us in the United States and to the Western world. We have to understand it. So let's, let's walk through some st- statistics. So Russia is the 11th largest economy in the world, has a GDP of about $1.6 trillion. That compares to the United States with a GDP of roughly $20 trillion has a population of about 146 million people. Let's compare those two stats with Ukraine. Ukraine has about 40 million people and an economy of about $140 billion, so about a tenth the size of the Russian economy. Now, while the Russian economy has made strides since the wall fell in becoming a market-based economy, it is not really a true westernized economy. There's a lack of regulation. You still have massive influence by the mafia and the oligarchs. I would argue it's essentially a mafia state run by the Don himself, Vladimir Putin. So that has led to a lack of really solid economic growth for its citizens. It's not a first world country. The average Russian citizen brings home just $585 a month, or roughly $7,000 a year. They're a poor nation. They are a developing nation. And as a developing economy, Most of what they produce is based on the exploitation of commodity resources. You have to remember Russia is the largest nation geographically in the world, and so they have a lot of commodities to exploit. Over 50% of their exports come from just two areas, mineral fuels, i.e. oil, natural gas, and gems and precious metals. Nine out of the top 10 Russian exports are commodities. So, you know, when your 10th largest export is fish, It's not exactly a westernized, developed economy. The biggest buyers of Russian goods are China, the Netherlands, Germany, Belarus, and Turkey. The U.S. is the 10th largest buyer of Russian goods, buying up roughly 3% of their exports. In contrast, China buys over 13% of all Russian exports, and the top five buyers make up about 41% of all Russian exports. And so remember, we said China, Netherlands, Germany, Belarus, and Turkey. Well, the Netherlands, Germany, and Belarus are buying a lot of energy from Russia. So is China, by the way, but but there's a lot of Western energy purchases, and we're going to dive into that here in a minute. Then when you look at what does Russia buy from the world, Russia, because they're a developing nation, because they're a producer of commodities, what they're buying is largely finished cars, medication, vehicle parts, broadcasting equipment, you name it. The U.S. ships about $9.2 billion worth of goods into Russia. That is only about 0.3% of all U.S. exports. Losing Russia as a market is not a big deal to the United States. It's probably not a big deal to a lot of the world. We can see this snapshot. Not a big deal on the international stage economically is Russia. It hasn't been for a long time. A lot of their power was sapped when the USSR broke up 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, excuse me, and they're still feeling the reverberations of that today. Then we dive into the sanctions. The West has said, essentially, Ukraine's not part of NATO, so we're not marching in there, but we don't like what you're doing, Russia, and so what we're going to do is we are going to use the power of sanctions to combat this. We talked, I think it was in our last 
uh, podcast about whether or not sending men into the fray makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I think the American people don't support that. I think much of Western Europe doesn't support that. And so I'm not here to make that argument today. I think the argument we need to have is whether or not we are doing enough on the sanctions front to make it matter, or how will those sanctions impact the market and the economy, and how will those sanctions impact the current battle underway in Ukraine today. Let's go through them in their in their totality. The first and the biggest area that we have attacked Russia from a, from a sanctions standpoint is in the banking sector. That's the main way we intend to make Putin and his cronies suffer. We want to cut off their access to Western capital. We've done that through a variety of sanctions on some of the largest banks in Russia. This has a twofold effect. First, the bank's assets in the West get frozen. And so, you know, they have significant assets. They have real estate investments. They have you know, subsidiaries. All of those assets are being frozen for several of these banks. And second of all, those banks will no longer have access to the U.S. and European debt markets which is where a lot of debt transactions take place. So raising capital to do things in Russia becomes much, much harder. On the long term, this is a big deal. It's the type of action that can strangle the Russian economy. And if you look at the Russian stock market and you look at the ruble, the Russian currency, both have recognized that. The Russian stock market is down 53% for the year as of Friday. The ruble's down 12%. Both of those are showing a recognition that the sanctions that are happening today are going to be impactful to the Russian economy over the long term. But that's the long term. We know that prior to the invasion, Russian banks, especially the central bank, stocked up on U.S. dollars, and they have plenty of liquidity. Putin's been planning this for a while. I mean, there was a huge move in December to bring U.S. dollars into Russia, so I think we can say he's at least been thinking about it since December. And we know that he was prepared for these, these types of sanctions. Now, there's a lot of discussion right now about cutting Russia off from SWIFT. SWIFT is the international platform for banking transactions. It's controlled by the G7. It's run out of Belgium. Theoretically, we could cut them off from this system. That would be important and it would be a bigger step than we've taken thus far. But it is not truly effective unless we fully shut off their banking sector first. And we have not done that yet. You know, we've shut off some of their big banks, but we have had no sanctions so far on the Russian Central Bank, which is the Russians' version of the Fed. And so the Russian Central Bank can still actively act on behalf of the nation's banks and the international markets. And so cutting those banks off from SWIFT doesn't do much good until you cut off the Russian Central Bank. Now, that's being rumored. Now, I'll, I'll admit this podcast is going out on Monday. I'm recording it over the weekend because I have to get on a plane and travel to a conference. There's a lot of stuff changing in real time. Over the weekend, the White House began discussing sanctions against the Central Bank. Will that come to fruition? I don't know. Uh, it's very hard to say. But if it did, it would be an aggressive step forward, and it would mean that cutting Russia off from SWIFT would be much more impactful. So there are several steps in this process. So that's the, that's the banking sector and the financial sector. The next thing is the oligarchs. You know, we all know this you know, story of the oligarchs. There's roughly, you know, Britain claims there's 36 key oligarchs 
in Russia. And these are the people that have capitalized on this very, um, very mafia-like regime over the years. You know, this, as the story goes, back in the day when the USSR broke up and Russia was becoming the Russian Federation, they began selling off state-owned assets because, right, the state owned everything. And there were a lot of sweetheart deals that went around that allowed people, powerful people, to buy up these entities at massively discounted prices and become obscenely wealthy in the process. And so you're talking about some of the world's wealthiest people. There are many reports that Vladimir Putin is the world's wealthiest person because not only did these oligarchs succeed in this process, but Putin made sure that in every one of these sweetheart deals, he got a cut. And so there is a ton of corruption, and these oligarchs have have capitalized on it quite well. You got to give them credit. And there is a belief that these are the largest supporters of Putin, both financially and politically. And so if you want to make Putin suffer, you need to make those closest to him suffer. And so that process has started. There have been a variety of sanctions placed on a number of these individuals in recent days. But at best, it's a hodgepodge of rules. It's not a worldwide thing. Each country has taken a slightly different approach. And I would be cautious in saying it's anything that's causing them a lot of pain. I think it's causing them a lot of headaches. It's making their life a little bit more difficult. But the international community has yet to step forward with the tough stuff. The tough stuff is revoking their visas, confiscating their property. I saw a great chart over the weekend about all of the oligarch yachts that were still parked at Western ports. Are we going to go take their yachts, right? Are we going to kick their kids out of Western countries? They know what they're doing. They don't educate their kids in Russia. They can't get a good education in Russia. They send them over to the United States. They send them over to Great Britain. They send them over to France. Are we going to turn around and say, get out? Your kids need to go back to Russia. Until we're willing to do some of that stuff, I think this is an inconvenience, but it's not a sticking point for the oligarchs. They're still making a lot of money. As long as Putin can continue to line their pockets in a way that is much more excessive than the pain they're feeling from the West, I don't feel like we're going to peel them off from him too quickly. And then the last big one is energy. The big threat prior to this invasion was, man, Putin, if you do this... If you do this, we're going to cut off Nord Stream 2. President Biden stood at the podium with Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany. They stood at the podium of the White House and they said, listen, or Biden said, if you do this, we're going to cut off Nord Stream 2. Scholz didn't actually say that. And so there was some question as we led up to the days of the invasion about whether or not it would happen. But when the invasion happened, Germany did come out and say, nope, Nord Stream 2 is dead. And then the White House came out and announced that they were sanctioning the company that owns the pipeline. The pipeline is dead. It's not going to happen, at least until this uh, aggression has stopped. So that's important. But I think it's also important to understand that there was no gas running through Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was a pipeline that had yet to be opened. As a matter of fact, the pipelines that were shipping Russian natural gas into Europe we're running at roughly 50% capacity before the invasion happened. We have not actually gone after the energy sector yet. We've gone after future 
growth of the energy sector for Russia, but we haven't attracted current sales of energy. 39% of Europe's gas supply comes from Russian natural gas. That is still flowing. There are no sanctions against the sale or production of petroleum products in Russia or from Russia. Here's a really scary stat. Russian natural gas sales to Europe last week in the heart of the invasion went up. They didn't go down. Vladimir Putin made more money on gas sales to Europe last week than the week before. Why? Buyers were taking advantage of the price dislocations between the Russian market and the European market, number one. And number two, they were stocking up in case sanctions came. But they had a really good week. I mean, this is crazy. Ukraine is in the midst of being bombed, of of being brutalized, and gas transit from Russian companies through Ukrainian pipelines jumped by almost 100% last week. That's insane. And so, you know, we've said it before in this podcast, Russia is not a country. It's an oil company masquerading as a country. If you want to make them bleed, if you want to make it hurt, you have to cut them off from international energy markets. Putin assumed we would. You might recall that he very smartly at the beginning of the Olympics went to China and signed a new long-term deal on gas. He knew that these hostilities were coming and we would likely attack his energy industry. He's been preparing himself for that attack. It hasn't happened yet. We have not been willing to endure the pain. And I think I would argue Europe has not been willing, and primarily Germany has not been willing, to endure the pain of having to pay more for natural gas. Until we're willing to do that, what's happening with these sanctions is significant, but it's not quite enough yet. So last week we talked about buying the invasion. And we showed in our memo several charts that showed over the course of the last several major conflicts in this world, there was a lot of volatility leading up to the conflict and a lot of negative market pressure. But after the invasion actually started, we saw significant growth in the market. So the the argument here is by the invasion. It sounds warmongery. I'm sorry for that. But historically, it's been true. And guess what? It was true this week as well. There was a ton of volatility, especially in the first half of the week. Putin's speech on Monday scared the heck out of the markets. But when it came to the end of the week, if you look at the chart, you know, the bottom of the market was Thursday morning, immediately after the invasion started. Over the course of the next day, the U.S. stock market, or next two days, the U.S. stock market was up substantially. On Thursday morning, the market was down 6% for the week. By the end of the day, Friday, the market actually closed up 0.1% for the week. Even in Europe, an area that is much more affected potentially by this, the market was only down 2.35% for the week. So the market responded nicely to the buy the invasion trade. Why? You know, as sad as it is, the world's looking around and saying, this really isn't going to affect us that much economically at least not as much as the initial concerns may have suggested. The sanctions that have been put in place are admittedly some of the harshest we've seen. They would probably pale only to the Iranian sanctions that the U.S. placed to try to shut down the Iranian nuclear program, but they are not harsh enough yet to cause economic discomfort to the Western world. Let's be clear. 
Western governments are not yet willing to make that sacrifice. And so instead of a swift and decisive blow to the Russian economy, we've decided we're going to go for the long, slow strangle. That probably will be enough long-term to be the undoing of Comrade Putin. But it gives him a lot of room to maneuver right now. It gives him a lot of room to execute his invasion plans of Ukraine. And so we've essentially left it to the Ukrainian people to battle the immediate war for democracy. They have shown amazing resolve and courage. And we should all say a prayer for them uh, and hope that they can deal the blow that we're not yet willing to deal. Now, all of this will change. All of this could change. Putin has, has shown he is, let's call him unhinged. How far is he willing to push this? Is he willing to start going after some of the other regions he talked about in his essay in July? Is he going to start going after Lithuania, Latvia, Eastern Poland? Some of these things we don't know. There's no way to know. The world can still get sucked into this. The world could still respond with more aggressive sanctions. Those things could cause volatility in the markets. But in the meantime, right now, as the situation sits today, no real concern for U.S. equity markets. And so we'll have to watch that very carefully and see how it progresses over the coming weeks. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening once again. If you have any questions or would like to talk more about these issues, I'd encourage you to give us a call at 515-273-1333, or you can reach us on the web at www.insightwealthgroup.com, where you can read our weekly Insight Memo and see some of the data backing up what we've been talking about today. We hope you have a great week. Pray for Ukraine. Thank you. Securities offered through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered to Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.